So the year was 1436, and there was a scholar named Thomas Arezzo who was at a fish shop, and in that fish shop, there were stacks of paper to wrap the fish for the buyers. And he looked through this stack of papers, and he discovered a copy of a second century document. It was, it's now referred to as the letter to Diognetus. This letter is actually written by an unknown author to a man by the name of Diognetus, who was a Roman who also did not believe the claims of Christianity, but he was at least willing to talk through and listen uh, from a Christian as to why should somebody believe Christianity and how in the world has Christianity grown in this Roman Empire. In this letter to Diognetus, the author is trying to show how we can or why we should believe Jesus and his claims. But at the end and towards the end of his letter, he comments on the experiential evidence of why we or how we see evidence to the truthfulness of Jesus. And the experiential evidence he gives is not something like, I feel really good now, and I used to not, so Jesus is true. Instead, he uses martyrdom as an evidence and the results of the martyrdom. I want you to see one portion. He writes this, Have you not seen Christians flung to the wild beasts to make them deny their Lord, and yet remaining undefeated? Do you not see how the more of them suffer such punishments, the larger grows the number of the rest? These things do not look like the work of man. They are the power of God and the evident tokens of his presence. See, one of the questions that Diognetus seemed to have is, how is Christianity growing when we're killing the Christians? And the author says, by a miracle of God, that God is working in these people and through their deaths, this word for martyr actually means to testify to something. Their deaths are testifying to Jesus, that Jesus is greater than their own lives. Martyrdom speaks to the value of Jesus. Another second century North African theologian by the name of Tertullian, he says similarly, when he speaks of Christians who face death, he says, whoever beholds such noble endurance will at first, as though struck by some kind of uneasiness, be driven to inquire what is the matter in question. And then when he knows the truth, immediately follow the same way. So what Tertullian, I think, is saying is that You will look at these Christians being persecuted and you'll say, wait a second, why are they being persecuted? And then when you see how they endure through the persecution, you'll say, you know what? I want to be like them. I want to embrace what they believe. Another second century Christian who goes by the name of Justin Martyr wrote of how the martyrdom of Christians actually was used by God to draw him to Christ. And by the way, his last name is not Martyr. It's given to him because he was martyred for his faith. But he talks about how he had been a man who reveled in the teachings of Plato. 
And he had heard the accusations against the Christians. He had heard the lying rumors that Christians lived in sinful pleasure. But he believed those things until he saw the martyrdom. And he says, I watched them stand fearless in the face of death and every other thing that was considered fearful. And I realized the impossibility of their living in sinful pleasure. And Justin ended up embracing Christ. Now, as I'm talking about second century Christians, you could be thinking, hold on a second, Pastor Timothy, today's Easter. We're not talking about other people. We're talking about Jesus rising from the dead. So what does this have to do with these Christians? Well, these Christians' deaths have everything to do with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. What Jesus accomplished shaped these people and changed them drastically. Why? How could they be shaped by Jesus? Well, go back to that letter of Diognetus, and the author writes of God this wonderful truth. And just listen, if it helps you to close your eyes, to pay attention a little bit more. It's a longer quote, and I don't have it on the screen. But the author writes of God, and he says, Instead of God hating us and rejecting us and remembering our wickedness against us, he showed how long-suffering he is. He bore with us and in pity gave his own son as a ransom for us, the holy for the wicked, the sinless for sinners, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable working. Oh, benefits unhoped for that the wickedness of multitudes should thus be hidden in the one righteous and the righteousness of one should justify the countless wicked. Oh, benefits unhoped for. We didn't even hope for these things, but what glorious benefits. Jesus, who had lived just a little over 100 years before that author not only shaped that man's thinking, but changed his life, and not only his life, but many Christians as well, so much so that they were willing to go to the point of martyrdom, to death, and excruciating deaths. Why? Because God the Son came and took on human flesh and came into the cesspool of this world in the brokenness where he was high and lifted up in glory, worshiped by angels, coming to this earth to be a human being. And not only that, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, which would be enough, but at the cross, God poured out the just punishment that sinners deserved. And Jesus took it in the place of sinners so that anyone who would trust in him would have life in God, eternally so. Oh, benefits unhoped for. What a glorious exchange. And not only that, not only has Jesus come to forgive people of their sins and then to leave them there, 
But Jesus came to reverse the curse. There is actually eternal hope because Jesus designs to come back again, right? And he is going to bring a new heaven and a new earth. I want you to think of it this way even too. When Jesus died the cross death, what did they put on his head? A crown of thorns. What did God declare as an evidence of the curse on this world? Thorns. You will work and there will be thorns. And then Jesus has a crown of thorns on himself, cursed on the tree. You know what that signifies? He's reversing the curse. He takes the curse on himself so that there's no need for future curse. No more thorns will fill the ground. We sing that. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. This is how people could live their lives for Christ and die with resolute hope. All because of what Jesus has done. So this morning, actually, what I want to do in talking about the resurrection of Jesus, I actually want to talk about how the resurrection changed specific people. Not just the people in the second century, but specific people in the New Testament accounts, particularly in the book of John. And in the book of John, I think that we see in these stories that I'm going to tell you is that Jesus' resurrection gives hope. Now, when I use the word hope, I don't mean it like many people today use the word hope. For example, if a wife says to her husband, hey, what time are you going to be home tonight? And the husband says, I hope to be home by five. And she says, I hope so too right? I'm not going to believe what you say. Whenever you say this, we're just going to add 30 more minutes onto that one, okay? So I don't mean hope like that. The word hope from a biblical perspective actually has a steadfast assurance with it. I steadfastly believe this, embrace this, even though I cannot see. I know it's true. It's real. I'm steadfast in this. And Jesus' resurrection gives hope. Do you want hope? Do you sometimes feel like your life is simply a cycle of one incident after another and they don't really matter? Have you ever asked the question before, what's the point? Why, why should I do any of this? If that's you, then look to Jesus' resurrection. Look to his resurrection and find a hope that shapes your entire life. So we're going to talk about three people, Mary Magdalene, Thomas, and Peter. And if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 20. And in John 20, we're going to start by reading verses 11 through 18. But before I read, let's pray together. Father, Abba, hallowed be your name. Oh, we pray that we would take this time together in the word seriously, with great joy and humility, that we would rejoice in what you have done to reconcile sinners to yourself. I pray, grant us 
the understanding that we need, hearts that are receptive. I pray for those who trust in Jesus that they would love Jesus more, living every day in light that Jesus rose from the dead. And I pray for those who don't trust Christ that they would see the magnificence of him raising from the dead and trust him for the first time. Lord, grow us in repentance and dependence. I love you, Father. Thank you. Amen. So chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. What we see in Mary Magdalene is a dramatic change and a superior hope where she, she has a living hope. Now, who is Mary Magdalene? Some people have speculated that she was the woman that was there when the religious people were going to cast stones at her and Jesus says, he who has no sin cast the first stone. Um, that's a nifty speculation, but it, there's no evidence to that whatsoever. What we do know about Mary Magdalene is that from Luke chapter 8, Jesus casts seven demons from her. There are other women that are mentioned in that story, and we also know that Mary Magdalene and these other women help to support Jesus and the male disciples. And whereas other women are mentioned in the gospel accounts, Mary Magdalene shows up again and again and again, all the way to Jesus' crucifixion, and obviously after. I want you to imagine being Mary, being demon-possessed means one thing, but it also means in that culture that you were a social outcast, there weren't going to be people in your life that were going to love you, be patient with you, touch you. She's alone and oppressed by demons. Her life is hopeless. And then Jesus invades her life. And Jesus comes in to her presence and he casts the demons away. He shows love to Mary and she 
is never the same after that. You, you can't remain unaffected. And not only this, Mary doesn't simply go back to how life used to be. Okay, thank you for casting out the demons. Now I'm going to live life how it used to be. No, instead she knows Jesus is, Jesus is someone different than everybody else and he's worthy to be followed. And so she follows him. She's a female disciple of Christ. But then comes life-altering, startling news. Jesus is being tried for blasphemy. Well, Jesus, he's, he's got to get out of this. There's, there's no way that that can stick. And then Jesus is being taken to the Roman court. What? He hasn't done anything wrong. There's no way that the Roman court is going to charge him of anything. And then Jesus is headed towards scourging. Mary is there from a distance the whole time, watching the Savior who healed her become beaten and his body torn. She's there when Jesus is murdered and breathes his last. And she's probably wondering, what just happened? What's, what's going on? On Sunday morning, she comes out to the tomb with some other women, but John only highlights her. And they bring spices for Jesus' body to remove some of the stench. But the tomb is rolled away and What's, what's going on? Now, she is not assuming resurrection from the dead. That is not what she's thinking. She is thinking somebody stole Jesus' body. Somebody took him away. So she runs back to the disciples, tells them the tomb is empty, and John and Peter run out to the tomb. John makes it there first. Peter just runs in. The grave clothes are there, and then the face claws are nice and folded up. We're told that John believes, not sure exactly what Peter's thinking, but they leave. Mary still has questions. She sticks around. And we're told that she then looks inside the tomb. And as she looks inside the tomb, there's two angels that appear. Why are you weeping? Now that seems like a dumb question. But sometimes the most obvious questions are what we need to get our minds thinking. Why are you weeping? I don't know where they've laid the body of Jesus. Again, she's, she's thinking Jesus is dead. But she's going to cling even to a dead body. Where is it? There's no more, at least we're told in John's account, of no more interaction there. Mary turns around out of the tomb, and then it says Jesus is there, but she assumes that he's a gardener. Now we're told again in just a moment that she turns to look at Jesus. So it probably something like this happens. She comes out of the tomb, she looks, and maybe she turns. I don't know if there's shame or she's been crying or what, but 
She does have her back towards this gardener. And the gardener asks, why are you weeping? But he doesn't stop there. Jesus adds, who are you seeking? Why are you crying? Who are you seeking? If you've taken Jesus's body, tell me and I will take it. She's still thinking he's dead. And all Jesus has to say is, Mary. And she knows. She, she, all the questions, it all comes together right in that moment where she doesn't have to figure out, wait a second, I thought you were dead. Wait a second, you're alive. She just, you're alive. And she turns and the implication from the text is that she clings to Jesus. She, she holds him tightly because this is the one who cast the demons out of her. This is the one who touched her life. She really didn't believe in vain. He's alive. Teacher. She cries. <laughs> Wouldn't you do the same? She thought he was dead. But she discovers he's come back. He's back. He's here. We don't have to go looking for the dead body. But verses 17 and 18 say this. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to him, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Now, is Jesus saying nobody should hug him until he's in heaven? That's not the point of the statement. The point of the statement that Jesus is making is don't cling to my physical presence having to be near you. I'm leaving, but it's for a purpose. Jesus has given a mission to his disciples, and the mission is not complete yet. That because Jesus is ascending up to the right hand of the Father, he has all authority that he is going to exercise in drawing people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to himself. And he's going to work by the power of the Spirit through his disciples to proclaim this message that Jesus died in the place of sinners and rose in order to give them reconciliation with God. And so Jesus says, don't cling to my body being here. Now go, tell the disciples. You know, Mary, I think we could say it this way, she's the first post-resurrection evangelist. She's able to declare the gospel with Jesus' life, death, resurrection in it. And she goes and she proclaims, her life is changed. What was her life like, though, before Jesus rose from the dead? Questioning. Wondering, is he worth following? She's clinging, to, she's clinging to a dead body. You know, a lot of us do that in our own lives, not maybe a literal dead body. 
But there's a lot of things in our lives that we can look to for our hope and our assurance and our security. Maybe for you, it's money, it's uh, relationships with people, it's a child, it's you name it. So certain things you cling to for your security and cling to for your hope. And have you ever had a situation before where that thing or that person um, went away? Maybe it was death. Maybe it was certain pain in your life. And you know what we, what we try to do as human beings? We try to cling to that thing. No, I have to have it. I have to have that money that I lost. I have to have that family member or else I can't live. We do that just like Mary did. But this story shows us, this true story shows us, Jesus is the only one worth turning to and trusting. Because since he rose from the dead, he's never going to die again. Since he rose from the dead, he is a living hope. A living hope. We're not placing our life in something that's dead. We're placing our life in the one who is life and rose from the dead. Mary was changed. And Mary proclaimed, the Savior who I trusted really is the Savior. We go on in John, and John tells another story about Thomas. And Thomas, this story I think shows us that Jesus' resurrection gives a secure hope. Look at verse 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with him. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. And put your hand, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. Now, Thomas is mentioned on different occasions in the gospel accounts, but he's probably most well-known for this account where he gives the loving title, Doubting Thomas. And in some ways, I kind of feel bad for him uh, because why don't we pick up on an account like John 11 in verse 16? And in that scenario, Jesus is going to go to raise Lazarus from the dead and the other disciples are telling Jesus, don't go because the people there were going to stone you. And listen to Thomas's response there. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas, there in that story, it doesn't make any sense, but he is willing to say, I will die with Jesus if Jesus is going to die. But we also know that just because you have strong faith at one point does not mean that faith stays the same at another point in your life. Faith can waver. And Jesus' death almost seemed to shatter everybody's faith. But we see this even more clearly with Thomas. What we see in the story of Thomas, and what I love about this story 
that John brings about at this point is we see that we as human beings are not saved by the strength of our faith. We are saved by a savior who is strong. We see in this interaction between Jesus and Thomas, what I've, I've mentioned before in other sermons, that it's not the amount of faith that saves, it's the one on whom our faith depends who saves. And so look at the story. Before this incident, John tells us that Jesus appeared to the other disciples. And for some reason, Thomas isn't there. We don't know why, but Jesus shows up to those disciples and then those disciples tell Thomas at some other point in time, we saw Jesus. And Thomas's response is, unless I see the scars, I will not believe. Unless I see it. Now, hold on a second. Do you think Thomas's friends were close to Thomas? Do you think the disciples were close to each other? Yeah, they traveled a lot together. They sacrificed and grew with each other over the years. Do you think that his friends should be trustworthy sources of information? You think? You think he should trust his friends in what they say? Yeah. But Thomas is at a point of such despair that he's not even listening to his friends. Have you ever had a situation like that before in your own life? I've had it before in seasons of depression that I've felt, discouragement, anxiety, and I'm believing lies in my head and I have friends say, hey, your life is good. Hey, God is good. Hey, remember, remember. And over the years, I've learned that when I can potentially feel like I'm falling off that precipice, I need to go to a friend of mine and say, hey, how am I supposed to think right now? What am I supposed to believe? What's true in this moment? Because I'm not thinking straight. Thomas wasn't thinking straight. He wasn't listening. He was hopeless. He was despairing. I will only believe if Jesus shows himself. And I see those scars. Now Jesus could have said, well then if that's the case, you'll never believe. But he doesn't do that. Thomas, eight days later, is with his friends in a room with a locked door, and Jesus shows up. Now, either this means by miraculous power he unlocked the door and came in, or there's something else about the resurrected body we don't understand. But Jesus comes into this room and proclaims peace. And and by the way, this word for peace is not just internal sense of calm. The word for peace that's used here has the idea of, of there was a war and now there's peace. What once was an enemy is now a friend. And Jesus comes in to the disciples and he says, peace be with you. Peace be to you. You are, are in right relationship with God. And you say, okay, so what's the big deal? I mean, he's just talking to his disciples, you know. Of course, they're friends. But do you remember what the disciples did in the darkest moments of Jesus' life? The closer ones fell asleep while Jesus is weeping in prayer in the garden. And then when Jesus is taken away to be tried, they scatter. Only a few people are around to see Jesus' death. 
So it is extremely gracious and wonderfully comforting for them to hear, peace be with you. Because remember, Jesus even said in his ministry, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. What could they be thinking? Now, the other disciples had heard Jesus make that statement before, but Jesus makes it again while Thomas is there. But this whole incident happens, I believe, because Jesus wanted to talk to Thomas. Because Jesus says, peace be with you, and then he focuses over at Thomas. And he says to Thomas, touch me here. Put out your hand. Touch me here. What a gracious Savior. By the way, I think that that also shows the divinity of Jesus. Jesus does have a flesh that's resurrected, but he's also God, which means he's omnipresent. He heard Thomas saying, I have to touch. And so Jesus shows up in the flesh. But Thomas says he has to touch the scars. Ventura, I want you to ponder this. Jesus' body was broken and torn. And he keeps scars. Why does he do that? Why, is his, why will his resurrected body always, for all eternity future, have the scars on them? I have scars on my body. Many of you know I had a surgery last fall that seems to have not been effective, so I've got three scars here. And someday, I will not have those scars anymore. And someday, that also means this isn't going to hurt anymore. I am grateful for that. And I'm going to run into Jesus' arms in that day. But Jesus keeps the scars. My scars, ineffective. But Jesus' scars, they were effective. They actually did accomplish the salvation of human beings. They actually did bring about the reversal of the curse. So do you know this, Christian, that for all eternity future, we will behold our Savior and we will see his scars forever being reminded that our Savior died for us and loved us with an eternal love of God for all eternity? It reminds me of the hymn writer Fanny Crosby. She wrote in her lifetime about 8,000 hymns, and she was blind. And there was this point in time as she was getting older, and she was having a conversation with a friend of hers, and that friend asked her, Fanny, do you think when you get to heaven that you will know who Jesus is? And she answered positively. She's sure that she will, but she did also say, but I've also pondered that question because you're not just asking if I'll see Jesus. You know that I've never seen a human being ever. And will I ever be able to tell the difference between one and another? And while I do believe that I will know who Jesus is, in case there's a problem, I will look upon the one that I think is Jesus and then I will go up to him and ask to see his hands. And then she wrote the song, I Shall Know Him.
I shall know him. I shall know him. And redeemed by his side, I shall stand. I shall know him. I shall know him by the prints of the nails in his hands. You know, we're in a similar position with Fanny Crosby. We haven't seen Jesus' resurrected body. We don't know what he looks like. I mean, Thomas, Peter, they got to see his resurrected body, but we don't. How are we going to know? How are we going to know? We will see his scars and for all eternity worship him, the one who has brought us to God and redeemed us from the curse. Now, getting back to Thomas, Jesus shows his scars. And Thomas is called not to disbelieve, but to believe. Which, by the way, means that Thomas is reverting backwards to unbelief. But when Jesus shows himself, Thomas makes a powerful statement in verse 28. My Lord and my God. It's the same statement we'll make when we're in heaven and we see his scars. My Lord and my God. And Thomas says the same thing. My Lord and my God. Not just the Lord and the God, which is a powerful statement in and of itself, but he says, my Lord and my God, you are my Savior. My disbelief did not change the fact that you saved me and that you are my Savior. This is a culminating story in the book of John because John starts off his book by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then John talks about how Jesus is divine. And then we get to this story of Thomas, doubting Thomas. And Thomas's belief is rekindled and he declares he is God. He is Lord Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is talking about people like us. The word for blessed doesn't mean that you just have these physical, tangible blessings. Oh, I got a new car because I believed on Jesus. But this word for blessed is referring to a state of eternal blessedness with God. Some of you can say, I don't feel blessed. I feel like everything I touch gets destroyed. I feel like when I do this, there's problems over here and there's problems over here and there's problems over here. That doesn't feel like blessing because you're looking at blessing just from the realm of this life. Could the martyrs have thought God wasn't blessing them? They could have, but it doesn't seem like they did because they recognize my life is not composed of this life. My life is is Christ. And wherever Jesus is and whatever I experience, as long as I have Christ, I have life. So come what may, you can kill me. I have Christ. And you know what? From a historical perspective, Thomas went on after the resurrection and proclaimed Jesus. History teaches us that Thomas potentially made it as far as India in proclaiming the gospel. Did you know that? India. And there are various stories about what type of death he experienced. We're not really sure what type, but it seems most probable he was martyred for his faith. His life was changed. 
his Lord and God rose from the dead. And he was worthy to be followed no matter what. Thomas had a secure hope because his living Savior had kept him and held him, even in his weak faith. And Jesus does that for all of his own. Finally, we look at Peter having a love-based hope, a hope that is based in love. Chapter 21, 15 through 17 reads, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Now the scenario begins in this chapter where Peter is out fishing. And Jesus comes to shore and he calls the disciples to the shore. They come to shore and they eat fish together. Which, by the way, um, a hallucination doesn't eat physical fish. So some people who might want to make arguments, Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead. You need a body to eat, okay? So Jesus is sitting there and he's eating the fish. And keep in mind that up to this point, it doesn't seem as though Jesus has a specific conversation with Peter. He makes general statement, peace be with you, peace be with you. He focuses on Thomas, but it would seem very important that he would focus on Peter. Because Peter did verbally deny Jesus three times. Peter after that, was weeping over his denial of Christ. And again, Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. So Peter, I think, in some ways, probably in his mind, at the beginning of John 21, Peter's like, you know what? I'm done. I'm just going to go back to what I know what to do. I'm going to go fishing. And so he's out in the boat fishing. I mean, Jesus did give him this opportunity to minister, but he's failed. He's gone too far. Jesus calls them all back. And just like he targets Thomas, he targets Peter. And the first thing Jesus says to Peter is, do you love me? Can you imagine how that would feel to have that question asked of you? Knowing your betrayal, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes. I'm sure he's even asked himself that question over the course of the many hours as he's been weeping. Do I even love Jesus? Struggling with this question in his own mind. Now, now Peter would never ask the question, does Jesus love me? He knows the Savior loves him. But Jesus is asking him, do you love me? And then he says, yes. And Jesus asks again, do you love me? And he says, yes. And then he asks again, do you love me? And Peter's grieved because a third time is an exclamation. Do you really seriously love me? And Peter says, you know all things. You know that I love you. 
Now, Peter isn't saying that his love is perfect. Clearly, Peter knows that he has not been perfect. But where else is Peter going to go? Jesus has the words of life. I love you. It's a huge question for all of us to ask ourselves. I find many people who seem to think that God just wants us to believe what he says and then simply obey what he says, but God calls us to love him. To love him. And the only way that we can love God is if we know his love for us first. We love him because he first loved us, which means that Peter was confident in the love of Jesus towards him and Peter still was resting in some way or hoping in some way in that love. And the same should be true of us. If you are a Christian, you love God. You love him. And the hope Jesus is showing Peter is that he has a love-based hope because of his resurrection. Because Jesus, at every moment when Peter says, I love you, Jesus shows him that his life isn't over Jesus made a promise, and Peter, Peter was there when Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. If Jesus says he's going to do something, is he going to do it? Yeah? Absolutely. Peter was there, and Jesus said, I am going to make you a fisher of men. And you may have denied me, and you may have defied me, but that does not change my promise towards you. Peter, you are going to be a fisher of men. Put down those nets and go. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Tell them that I am the savior of sinners. And what a great candidate to tell people that Jesus is the savior of sinners than one who denied Jesus and who has been forgiven by Jesus. That he can go out and he can proclaim to people, Jesus did rise from the dead. And then Jesus predicts, Peter's death. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Did Peter follow Jesus? Did he? Yeah. You know, before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, we have a lot of stories of Peter wavering back and forth. And I'm not going to say that after Jesus' resurrection, Peter was perfect, because he wasn't. We have stories, story of failure, you know. But the level of boldness that rises up within Peter after Jesus' resurrection is astonishing. Peter is proclaiming Jesus no matter what the people are saying to him. He's being imprisoned because he loves Jesus and he believes the gospel that Jesus is saving sinners and calling people. Peter continues on in his ministry, sacrificing his life again, no matter what the cost is to himself. And then Peter finally arrives in the city of Rome. And Peter in the city of Rome is with also the apostle Paul. And they face persecution under Emperor Nero. And under Emperor Nero, Peter is going to undergo the death penalty. And not being a Roman, 
Peter's execution is going to be crucifixion. And Peter says, this is according to history and its high probability of its truthfulness. But Peter responds and says, I'm not worthy to die the way my Savior died. Crucify me upside down. And he's crucified upside down. His hands are stretched. He was taken where he didn't necessarily want to go. But he died testifying that Jesus is his life. And even if you take his life here, he has life because he's with his Savior. Listen, these types of things don't just happen in people. I want you to think again. How did these people act and behave on Saturday? Mary's questioning. Mary's weeping. Mary's wanting to cling to a dead body. Peter is weeping and living in shame. Thomas is disbelieving. If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, that's where they would have stayed. They would have all been there. But Jesus rose from the dead and they went from disbelieving to believing. They went from shame to rejoicing. They went from thinking they'd have to cling to a dead body to clinging to a living Savior. And people don't die for stories they make up. They're not just going to say, well, Jesus rose from the dead. You're going to die. Okay. They saw Jesus and they were changed. And I hope that if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Christ, that you would actually hear the words of the Apostle John. See, the words of the Apostle John, he tells us the reason why he wrote this book. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This term for belief doesn't just mean you know the facts. You can know the facts and not be committed. This term for believe has the idea of dependence, reliance, trust, knowing that your life is not in this stuff in this world or inside of you, but life and forgiveness can only be found in Jesus. And so believe, depend on him. And if you are a Christian here today, listen to these words. Look at these stories. Stop living Saturday over and over and over again. Sunday happened. And that Sunday was the beginning of the new creation of God's work of drawing people to himself, of God's work of restoring until that day when he comes back again and all sin will be done away with, all sorrow, all pain, and we will be in the presence of our God and the dwelling place of God will be with men. I genuinely desire and hope that if you don't trust Jesus, that you would find hope in him today. If you have questions about Jesus, what does it mean to trust him? Talk to me afterwards, somebody else who invited you here. 
And if you have found hope in Christ, I pray you'd grow even more. God's love is great and eternal. He loves you. And you know that because he sent his one and only son to die and rise again. Rejoice then. Rejoice that the crucified son rose from the dead and through faith in him you have hope. Let's pray. Our Lord, thank you. Thank you for the Savior who lived in our place and died in our place. Father, we thank you that Jesus rose from the dead to give us new life. And in that new life, to rejoice in the relationship with you and then to show that you are the Savior who takes sinners and grows them in obedience to you out of love. I do ask, Father, that if there are those here who don't trust you, that they would. And for those who are your children who are verging, maybe even on unbelief or wavering more, please, Father, strengthen them in the reality. Jesus rose from the dead. So it's in his name we pray and thank you. Amen. Life for all of us is generally made up of normal routine, everyday duties of life. Get up, go to work or school, come home, go to bed, and repeat. However, I'm sure that there are many of us that have had those crossroad moments, those moments that changed our lives forever. August 10, 2009 was that day for me. Let me explain. I was raised in a Christian home by parents that tried to teach me about Christ and the Bible to live out that truth in day-to-day life. However, there was a problem. That problem for me was sin, and for me, that sin was anger. As long as I can remember, I have struggled with anger. It wasn't really that bad, or so I told myself. It was justified. Because after all, that person deserved my anger. It was their fault. As I got older, out of high school, college, and then marriage, it only got worse. The more I rationalized, denied, the worse my anger became. In June of 2009, Sheila and I celebrated our 23rd anniversary. To be honest, it was not a celebration. I was angry all the time. Sheila and the kids always had to live under the cloud of anger that I had. On the outside, I could put on the mask and play the I'm perfect game. But on the inside, my heart was raging and depression and angry outbursts were very common. June and July of 2009 were terrible months for me. And in my mind, I wondered if our marriage would last. Monday, August 10, as I 
was late leaving for work and angry as usual, Sheila and I got into an argument. Our argument grew louder to the point that Emily took the other kids and left. About 11.30, in the midst of our argument, God showed up. I always thought that my Christian life depended on me. I had to put on a good face, that I was perfect, had to go to church, had to be involved, to try harder to deal with my sin. I was trying to control my life and be my own savior. The more I tried to perform or work or justify my anger, the more it grew. That morning, for the first time, my eyes were open to God and the fact that I didn't have to perform anymore. He did it all. Since that time, God has done some wonderful healing in my life, in our marriage, and in my relationship with my children. A big part of that healing has come over the last two and a half years in my walk with God himself as he has used his word, Ventura, in this body to continue to change me and challenge me in the battle with anger. Today, my heart is free from the bondage and shame of anger. That's why I'm so thankful for Christ's sacrifice and resurrection for me. Someday, we will enter into heaven and we will say, my Lord and my God, praise God that our Savior is stronger than sin and death. Praise him that we will see him again. So hear these words as we close our time together. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.